At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The work or works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than I, greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Key passage when it comes to studying the life of Athanasius, uh, what he defended, what he lived for. Uh, so let's take some time now and just ask for the Father's blessing. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, a time where the church, particularly at this local level, Fisherville Baptist Church can gather and be strengthened in the word and in fellowship. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have extended to us, particularly in your Son. And Lord, we thank you for your gospel. Lord, I'm thankful that you, who are so gracious and loving, saw fit to rescue me out of my sin. And set me on a journey. A journey that you have already uh, foreordained and made. A path that we ought to walk in so that we might bear testimony to the work of grace you've done in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts tonight to walk faithfully as so many have in the church, and that we would learn tonight, even from Athanasius, not so much how to defend the gospel, though that is important, but how to be a humble lover of your gospel and to defend it even if it means costing us our lives and the freedoms that we enjoy. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you have done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I have the privilege of presenting to you Athanasius. Now, there's a lot we could talk about when it comes to Athanasius. And um, hopefully tonight you will... Uh, here, yes, a little bit about the man himself, but I also want to talk about uh, the courage of Athanasius, his, his work, his 
consistency, his writings, uh, but also the biblical and theological contributions he has made to Christendom. Namely, those that, are, uh, that pertain to the divinity of Christ uh, and the Trinity. Now, some of you may or may not know, but Athanasius literally was in war most of his life. Um, it was the defense of the deity of Christ, the defense of the doctrine of the Trinity. But you know something? Some things, I would argue, are worth losing your jobs over. Uh, even if that means being ordered into exile or even death. And what Athanasius defended was um, the truth that the life and light of men, as John tells us in his gospel, is Jesus, he is God, of the same substance as the Father. Again, John chapter 10, verse 30, a passage we just read. And this was a truth that was very much worth defending. His single-minded love for Jesus expressed itself in a lifelong battle to explain and defend Christ's deity and to worship Him as Lord and as God. This is what Athanasius is best known for. The defense, really, of the gospel, isn't it? Defending the deity of Jesus against false teachers. What is it? That is a salvific issue, isn't it? It's a gospel issue. And there were times when it seemed as if the whole world had abandoned orthodoxy, especially given the amount of times that Athanasius himself was exiled, that he, when he was banished from Alexandria, Egypt. He was exiled five times, and four of which was specifically related to his defense of the deity of Christ and the Christian doctrine of the Trinity against a false teaching known as Arianism. Arianism, just so that we all understand, I'm not going to go into great detail on that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on false teachings, but how Athanasius actually battled this and how it came to um, a meeting, a council that we call Nicaea. Arianism is a non-Trinitarian Christological doctrine. Was it, it asserts the belief that Jesus was a created being, that he was only similar in substance to the Father, not the same in substance. In other words, Athanasius, I'm sorry, Arius would argue that there was a time when Jesus had a beginning. And so this false teaching, it developed sometime around the year 320 in Alexandria, Egypt. It's named after Arius. And Athanasius was just a little over 20 years old whenever the controversy broke out. Now, Arius was 40 or so years older than Athanasius. Let me say something to you young people. Stay in the Word. Um, because when you think about the history of the church, you think about controversies and how many things 
theologically and biblically are settled at so many levels, there are people who still stray, and God is raising up faithful men. It doesn't matter what your age is, but no matter your age, even if you are young, you might be <laughs> an Athanasius of the 21st century, Louisville, Kentucky, or wherever God places you. Just because Arianism by, or should we say, in the person of Arius, and some of his followers are dead, false teachings still exist. Later on, Arius is going to present a letter to Alexander, the then bishop of Alexandria, the bishop and mentor of Athanasius, the one who he served under, arguing that if the Son of God was truly a son, he must have had... Um, he must have had a beginning. There must have been a time, Arius wrote, when Jesus did not exist. And later, whenever Athanasius becomes the bishop of Alexandria, after Bishop Alexander dies, more on that later, the phrase, as you uh, gave reference to a little while ago, Athanasius contra mundum, that is, against the world, arose. And this phrase, it's attributed to Athanasius because he stood steadfast against an overwhelming desertion from orthodoxy in his day. And only near the end of his life did he begin to see the triumph of his labors and efforts unto gospel ministry. John Piper said, in a sense, it's anachronistic, that is, belonging to a period of time, to use the word orthodoxy this way. To say that the world abandoned orthodoxy, was it really there to even abandon? Well, biblical truth is always there to abandon. But orthodoxy generally refers to a historic or official or universally held view of what is true to Scripture. He goes on to say, was that there to abandon? The answer is suggested in the other great name given to Athanasius, namely, the father of orthodoxy. And that phrase seems to say that orthodoxy came to be because of Athanasius. And in one sense, that is true in regard to the Trinity. The relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had not received formal statement in any representative council before the time of Athanasius. So, in other words, even when there is no formal, historic, official, universally held, orthodox position, creed, or statement, biblical truth, the living and abiding Word of God, which is reliable, imperishable, and remains forever, according to Isaiah chapter 40 and 1 Peter chapter 1, is always there to be abandoned and can be abandoned. As far as Athanasius is concerned, the most formidable opponent to the heresy of Arianism and his commitment to the Word of God, the theology of the Nicene Creed, as well as his determination to be faithful to his divine Lord, even as one who refused to give way to political pressure and physical force from a succession of Arian emperors, the name given him, the father of orthodoxy, seems very appropriate, doesn't it? There's other names that he is given as well, and we'll consider those in a moment.
Athanasius was born somewhere around the time of 299 A.D. in a prominent Egyptian city of Alexandria. It's recorded that Athanasius was a short, dark-skinned man who, li- who had a fiery, uh, stubborn personality. You know, when God raises men up like this, you think of Athanasius and Martin Luther. It took their kind, their personalities to accomplish the things that God wanted to accomplish in that day and time, didn't it? So this is one way in which we can pray for some of our stubborn children. There's one man in particular in our home church. His daughter uh, is the female version of Athanasius. She wasn't dark, but she had a fiery and stubborn personality. And he always prayed that she would be the one to get the Bibles into China. That God would use this uh, energy uh, in that way. And though many appreciated (laughs) Athanasius and his biblical and theological contributions, especially uh, near the end of his life and thereafter, we are some who appreciate his works. But those who did not like him, they called him the black dwarf. But his life and work, which lays bare for us, his devotion, his meditation and true affections, reveals to us just how much of a biblical and theological giant he was. But even more than that, how precious Jesus was to him. Apparently, Athanasius did not receive a formal education, a theological education in his youth. However, this did not stop him from being noticed by the bishop. Alexander, the one whom Athanasius would later serve under. It's reported that one day, whenever the bishop was eating his breakfast, he looked up and he saw some boys playing on the beach. And um, the boys were pretending to be at church. Uh, They were going through all the motions of the liturgy. They were performing mock ceremonies. And at first, the the bishop smiled. All these young boys are playing church right here in front of the bishop. But then, however, he noticed that the boys were attempting to baptize, baptize each other. So he went over to them. He demanded to know what words they had uttered. And apparently Athanasius, the ringleader, was the only one who had performed all the proper rituals and had spoken the precise words of the baptismal liturgy without error. The bishop, he goes and he consult some of his associate pastors, and they concluded that, yep, he performed a valid baptism. (laughs) Did he get upset at Athanasius? No. Instead, he decided to take Athanasius under his wing um, and to encourage him and to teach him. And eventually, Athanasius became a very promising student. He was gaining respect by a lot of the leaders in Alexandria. And as a matter of fact, it is said that Athanasius' meditations on every book of the Bible was with such depth that no one had ever applied to one of them. A biography that he would later write reveals much about his own spiritual disciplines and what he cherished personally and how these disciplines would shape much 
of his future ministry in the years to come. He wrote a biography of Antony. Antony was an Egyptian monk who had uh, impressed Athanasius. Athanasius became close with him. He would visit with him from time to time. The biography became a bestseller in Christian antiquity, and apparently it was also very influential in the life of St. Augustine and his conversion. And among other things that Athanasius appreciated about Antony, one was this, his phenomenal memorization of the Scriptures. It is said that he memorized the entire Bible. And this also would uh, highly influence Athanasius as well because he himself memorized large portions of Scripture. Some even go so far to say that he... uh, if not all, most of the scriptures. And his commitment to Bible memorization would have been a tremendous impact in his life at so many levels. Not just uh, on the personal spiritual level, his walk with the Lord, his daily walk with the Lord, and his defense of the gospel, but even for believers years to come. For it had given him the ability to understand the storyline of Scripture, the storyline of redemption and how the Bible and its message fits together. In one of the letters that he wrote, it contains the earliest complete list of the New Testament books we have found. It's pretty impressive. Before the canon is even formed, Athanasius has a list of the New Testament books that are exactly what we have today. How did he arrive at that conclusion? Bible memorization. Being in the book, absorbing the Word of God. Along with the Old Testament, Athanasius declared that such books to be fountains of salvation that they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. In these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. There's a lot that we don't know about Athanasius. Now, in reading, I found some people uh, get sort of specific about uh, particular areas and dates and events in his youth. Others are unsure Uh, I'm not going to get specific about that tonight because I don't want to sound um, as if I'm speculating. The only real evidence we have is when he began serving under Bishop Alexander. And here it seems Athanasius learned much of his theology, uh, his pastoral skills as a deacon, and eventually secretary to the bishop. And as providence would have it, there... Three years after the Council of Nicaea, the cause of orthodoxy fell to Athanasius when his mentor, Alexander, dies and he takes up the bishopric there in Alexandria. However, the cause of orthodoxy was already being personally addressed by him with his pen as he was serving under the bishop. So before he became bishop, he was already working through the issues 
the false teachings uh, of Arianism. In one of his works titled, On the Incarnation of the Word, which here we are given a clue. And this is, again, before he becomes bishop, before Alexander dies, we already get an understanding of where Athanasius is coming from in his theology. And in this work, it shows the deep conviction he had in seeing that the central fact and the central figure of the Christian faith, as well as human history, is the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. The presence of God amid humankind, made human in Jesus, Athanasius said. This is what is at the heart of Christianity. And so... As the Arian controversy was gaining momentum, Athanasius was very much aware of its theology. Again, before he became bishop. As a matter of fact, and this is very disturbing, um, Athanasius was not the only one aware of this heresy. Uh, Not sure if the people in the streets or in the city were aware of it quite like he was. Uh, that false teachings was uh, as noticeable uh, to them as it was to him. But Christians could hear false teachers rallying together and singing in the streets these words, there was a time when the sun was not. How disturbing is that? Now, it's common to hear that Athanasius played a key role at the council, the Council of Nicaea, and had a hand in writing the creed. But that's not exactly true. Athanasius' role in the council would have been non-essential, at least at the formal level. He was still the secretary for Bishop Alexander and most likely would not have been allowed to speak at the council, much less help shape the creed itself. However, his writings, those that I referenced a moment ago, on the incarnation of the Word, this helped lay the foundation for the Orthodox party at Nicaea. He's going to follow uh, Alexander and pick up the bishopric, and much of his popularity began to grow at that point. People knew him. People trusted him. They knew he was articulate. He was the choicest uh, of Alexander, a a very respected man in the city. And they knew that he championed orthodoxy against Arius and his supporters. And nearly all of the works that he would pen, all the works that he would write in his life came after Nicaea. And these works were used to clarify They were used to defend and encourage orthodoxy. And the orthodoxy, uh, the biblical orthodoxy of the council and the creed. And though he was not formally involved in the council's decision-making and drafting of this creed, his biblical and theological contributions did, however, influence the council's Thinking, And here we have, again, another name that is given to Athanasius. What is that? The noble champion 
of Christ. Let's talk briefly about the council at Nicaea. A uh, lot written on this. Man, we could really work through some details here, and especially that which came after, especially in regards to uh, Athanasius' exile. But let's briefly just talk about the council for a moment. Controversies uh, within Christendom, uh, you well know that it was no new thing before the 4th century. <laughs> uh, the church had encountered its fair share of disagreements, hadn't it? Uh, disputes and false teachings leading up to the 4th century. And what made uh, Nicaea unique was that it was called and enforced by the emperor Constantine, who uh, I believe was converted sometime around 13 years prior to this meeting. So he attempted to bring together bishops from all parts of the Christian world because he was concerned deeply about the divisiveness that was in the kingdom. And so he wanted no further division. He wanted to unify, and he knew that there was nobody better to do this than bishops, even though they uh, sometimes could get up in arms about such meetings. Uh, one man by the name of Hoseus, Constantine's Christian advisor, he tried to go and make amends, but it didn't happen. Uh, the council was called, uh, and they met. They heard claims both from Arius and Alexander. Alexander, obviously, and apparently was the respected spokesperson for uh, those in uh, the Orthodox party of this meeting, but he was also the Bishop of Alexandria, a very respected and trusted man. The debate was not as up in the air as it seems. Part of the council's deliberations were spent understanding exactly what it is that Arius is teaching. And obviously, when he explained what it was that he was teaching, uh, he was deposed of. Uh, by the council. The council lasted from May through August. It ended with a statement of or orthodoxy that has helped shape Christianity, even to this day, at least in, uh, in creedal form. And in the end, the council came down like a hammer on Arius and his teaching. Now, this was a blow to Arius. It was a blow to his followers, and virtually everybody there had sided with Bishop Alexander and, of course, his protege, Athanasius, and only a couple of bishops in the meeting did not sign the creed, but they, like Arius, they were promptly uh, deposed of. And the anthem at the end of the creed shows clearly what the issue was. And here is what it says. And those who say there was a time when he, that is Jesus, was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing or out of another substance or thing, or the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. As you can imagine, some people got all antsy in this meeting. 
I mean, look how long it lasted. And some people were up in arms about a great many of things, especially when you're hearing somebody like Arius and some of his followers uh, promote a false teaching. And some people were so aggravated and annoyed, such as one individual by the name of St. Nicholas. Uh, we all know who he is, right? He apparently was not feeling uh, so jolly on this particular evening. He rose up and punched Arius in the nose. Uh, judging from the events at the meeting that day, it would have seemed as if the Arians had been roundly defeated, <laughs> but not quite. Uh, Arius, though banished, he would emerge again through his followers, namely a man by the name of Eusebius of Nicodemia, who took up his theology and became the head and center of the Arian cause. He's now leading the way of this false doctrine. And this is going to lead eventually to Athanasius' exile, which, as we said, occurs five times. Um, four of which had, uh, had dealings with his defense of the deity of Christ. When Alexander died, uh, Athanasius was elected to his place in 328 three years after the Council of Nicaea, and within two years after taking office, Athanasius was, of course, embroiled in controversy. And most of the bishops who had signed the creed, they did not like calling people who were heretics, heretics. They did not like to call them out. They did not like to say that they were wrong, that they were in error. They wanted to get rid of Athanasius and his passion for his cause. So what happens? You become accused of a great many of things. He was accused of levying, uh, levying illegal taxes. Uh, he was accused of being too young when he was ordained. They accused him of using magic and said that he subsidized treasonable persons and more. And Constantine, the emperor, he too was obviously influenced by some who did not like calling people out. He said that Athanasius took too hard, too hard line of a stance. And so he called him to Rome in 331, but see, the facts about Athanasius and his character, uh, he was released. He was acquitted. But his defense of the Nicene formulation of Christ's deity was increasingly in the minority. Again, the emperor, he didn't want division in the kingdom. He just wanted to go along to get along. And so what happens when you're this person, and you're in this kind of role, and you're calling out false teachers, and people do not like you too well, and those people persuade the emperor that you're a liar, that you're a thief, you're even a killer, a Bible-thumping rebel rouser, and all the rest, 
as well as being up against an individual who has the emperor's ear to depose you and to seek the restoration of a heretic named Arius, well, they look for ways to hush you up and to banish you, to send you into exile, get you out of the picture. So he's eventually banished. Then, sometime after his first exile, Constantine dies. He's succeeded by his three sons. They all agree that all exiled bishops ought to return home. But another controversy surrounded Athanasius. Some said since he was banished, now he's no longer legitimately a bishop. So he cannot serve in that role. And since he was away, there was a certain man who had the government behind him that wanted the building where he was bishop. And Athanasius did not want to give it to him, so he took it by force. And Athanasius, not wanting to cause any more violence in the city that had already occurred, he gave in and fled, left the city. And things like this went on three more times. Athanasius would be welcomed back and Then when emperors would die or when Arian emperors would come into power and controversy would be stirred up again, he would be banished. But he was finally brought back in 366 and he spent the last years of his life fulfilling his calling as a pastor and even as an overseer of pastors. He served in many ways like our pastor. Think about Fisherville here. How many pastors are serving in this congregation? I can tell you as one, I received great encouragement from Pastor Brian and the other elders. And I thank you for that. Uh, There's even testimony in history about the encouragement that Athanasius had given pastors in the area because he knew the pressures they were under, especially in that time as they sought to defend the gospel against false teaching. He carried on extensive correspondence and he gave great support to the cause of orthodoxy around the empire. He died in 373, and we're going to close this out by just sort of a memorial uh, as the people uh, gave him, not something that he himself thought he was. He was actually, uh, though he was a fiery individual, uh, though he had strong personality, uh, it's been written about him in many ways how much of a humble guy he was. That's what Bible memorization will do to you. And it is said of him, Uh, during the last, well, after his death, but before his death, he served uh, seven years of peace before his death. The people of Alexandria, they adored him. They considered him a great hero of the faith. Though he was accused of multiple things, hated by many, exiled five times, the people of Alexandria never stopped calling him their bishop, Bishop Athanasius. And though he was known for having a fiery 
personality, his passion for truth, and the passion he had for his people to know and understand the truth was what most people remembered about him after his death. Yeah, he was the champion of orthodoxy. We call him the father of orthodoxy. But we know him as the man who propagated the gospel in our city and wanted us to know this Jesus who has changed him and is changing the lives of people who believe. Well, again, there's probably tons more, and I will bore you no more. But do you have any questions, comments? Anything that you personally have um, that you have uh, um, learned in your own study uh, in reading church history that you would like to share with us about Athanasius? Right, right. And when you talk about the scars, I was reading where, you know, there's some men there who loss of limb, fingers, eyeballs. Um, so we, you know, we, we compare ourselves to other American Christians who may hmm. feel like comparing ourselves to, you know, nominal Christians that we are going to be okay. We don't want to be compared to Christians in the first century I wonder if that had anything to do with why Constantine put off his baptism for so long. Of course, it's debated whether it's true or That's right. You know, he, when he ordered the council, he wasn't even baptized up until that point. Some had issue with that. To hold a gathering as such. 
as emperor is one thing, but um, to claim to be a believer and have such a controversy at hand is quite another. As somebody who's not uh, making a declaration uh, to be uh, brother in Christ and part of the body of Christ. Anything else? Anyone else? You, know, you think about so many. You mentioned uh, uh, first century believers and even up until this time. How many people we esteem to be like today? Oh, that God would raise up many Athanasius like men or followers, I should say. I don't want to leave you ladies out. We live in an interesting day and time, don't we? Think about Arianism. Uh, what is uh, equal to it or it's, what is similar to it? In, in it it's a non-Trinitarian Christological uh, 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 belief. Mormonism. Jehovah Witnesses, Unitarians, uh, the United Church of God. Uh, and look how acceptable that is in our culture today. Just interesting, isn't it? Well, nobody has anything else. Let's, uh, let's close out with a word of prayer.